You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So is it a machine or a living thing? It's both, or neither. What do you mean, neither? It seems to be some sort of silicone-based hybrid. We're calling it GORT, Genetically Organized Robotic Technology. You know, it might surprise a lot of people to hear that directors occasionally do call in scientists when they're working on a uh, science fiction film. Do they? Because some of those science fiction films are way out there. You question the accuracy of any of the science in the, in the film. Well, they don't do it inevitably, but sometimes they do. In fact, I was the science consultant for the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still, Molly. You clarified the remake. Not the original, huh? Not the original, although I could have been a science consultant for that, but I wasn't. (laughs) So this was the one with Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves, John Mm -hmm. Cleese, Jennifer Connelly. What they next do is they send you the script, which, of course, you have to keep confidential. uh, And they just ask you to go through it and check the dialogue. That was the first thing they wanted. Just try and make the dialogue sound realistic. How would scientists really interact with one another? So what were the big scientific principles in The Day the Earth Stood Still? Now, this is a film about an alien coming to Earth, so it's already a kind of wild conceit. Was there any real science in there at all? Well, I mean, the whole story indeed revolves around aliens who have some concern about what we're doing to the environment. Okay, so they send some representative down to Earth to tell us to behave or they're going to do something terrible. That's Keanu Reeves. That's Keanu Reeves. He's the alien, indeed. And uh, in order to save our own species, by the way, we have to prove to them that we're worthy. And uh, that's the sequence in which my advice was actually most relevant because they had to show that because we have science, because we're scientifically literate, we're worth, you know, not exterminating. So did you have to fact check some of the scientific ideas in the film? Well, in a way, they had a scene in which the alien confronts an earthly scientist and they uh, sort of write some equations on the board and the alien gets the idea that, well, I mean, if, if these earthlings are worried about problems in general relativity, then they must be worth saving. So they need some equations to write on the board. I came in there. And then I was on the set. Uh, the, the interiors were shot in Vancouver. I was on the set with Keanu Reeves and John Cleese. I have so many questions to ask you. Uh, as they wrote the equations. In fact, if you go see the movie and you look at that blackboard with all the equations, they're all in my handwriting. (laughs) Your job was to provide an equation that was a a verifiable equation and put it up on the board, and then was there more to it than that? Well, also, of course, checking the dialogue, as I mentioned, uh, coaching them in terms of the kind of jargon and and behavior that uh, real scientists would have. Give me an example of something you suggested they change. Early in the film, there was a line that read in the original script Professor Fudnick, or whatever his name was, uh, Professor Fudnick, there's a bolide on a hyperbolic trajectory coming into the inner solar system at three times 10 to the seventh meters per second. You know, I was just saying that to my friend the other yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. I scratched that out, and I wrote, Bob, there's a goddamn rock headed our way. Uh, they went back to the original. Because you think that's what a scientist really would say. You bet. They never address one another as professor this, professor that. Never, ever. And they're not going to say a, a bolide on a hyperbolic trajectory. You know, that's all just jargon. They said, you know. Change, an, it, change it to this, but they didn't. If an asteroid were coming towards us, you're saying that's what they would say. My goodness, there's an asteroid coming towards us. Something like my goodness. <laughs> well, we'll hear about other science fiction films and see which ones took the advice of their scientific advisors and which one jettisoned that sage advice, uh, what the ratio is of science to fiction on the screen and whether it matters. And guess what science fiction film is considered by one expert to be the most scientifically accurate 
We'll tell you in a moment. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. So let's go to the movies. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal. Well, the onboard computer that decides to stop listening to the crew and obey a higher authority. 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick, was made in 1968 and it was set in the then future. It was about space travel and the origin of mankind, a world in which strange black monoliths show up and seem to affect evolution, and a radio signal being beamed from the moon. The the spacecraft and the space station were portrayed with the advice of the best aerospace engineers and scientists of the times. I mean, they they had this rotating space station that looked like a giant white metal donut. And that was the preferred design in the 1950s and 60s because, you know, by rotating, you'd get some sort of synthetic gravity. We don't actually build them that way, but it was thought to be very accurate. And the idea is they had engineers conferring with Stanley Kubrick about the design of the ship. Yes, yes. Kubrick was remarkably interested in getting the science right. Not every director is, but he was. And at some point, uh, the astronauts get to the moon. They begin to dig it up. Remember, 2001 was made before we actually did go to the moon. So did Kubrick's obsession with the scientific accuracy actually pay off? And if you guessed earlier that 2001 was judged the most accurate science fiction film, you're correct, at least according to David Kirby, science communication studies professor and author of Lab Coats in Hollywood. In terms of the digging up of the monolith on the moon, I mean, what was accurate about it were the spacesuits were matched up to the types of spacesuits that NASA was thinking about, the little moon vehicle that they used. I mean, there hadn't been a moon vehicle of that type yet, but Frederick Ordway, the science consultant, spent a lot of time with NASA and NASA engineers working through what that moon vehicle might look like. So those aspects of the movie were definitely authentic and matched with what NASA was thinking of doing. But the idea of a monolith being buried on the moon, you probably know as much as anyone that that's pretty fantastic at this point, that something like that would be there. But getting the scientists on board to help you think about the plausibility of those fantastical events is actually, I think, really important. Well, let me follow up a little bit on on Kubrick on the moon, because there are people who believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, these techniques are this authenticity, and perhaps even Kubrick himself were involved in the great moon hoax, that we didn't really go to the moon, that it was all filmed on a soundstage somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And that speaks to the authenticity that Kubrick brought to that film. There are a lot of people who do believe that Kubrick was involved. Some people believe that NASA was so involved in the making of 2001, and they sort of made a bargain. We'll help you show the latest technologies in your movie if you help us to fake the moon landing. Alternatively, there's the idea that 2001 was actually just preparation for that moon hoax, that that the ways in which he filmed all that technology were then going to be used to fake the moon landing. Now, obviously, Kubrick was open to suggestions from scientists, from technologists as to how to portray things. Now, I've been a, you know, a consultant for several science fiction films, including The Day the Earth Stood Still, the remake. And, you know, I would suggest things, including things like changing the premise of the film. Now, <laughs> they weren't going to buy into that for, I think, obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, it, it, they wanted advice. But on the other hand, I have to say the majority of the advice was ignored. So how do they decide what they're going to listen to and what they're not going to listen to? Yeah, I mean, what I found is that filmmakers have their own constraints, really. And, you know, they are creative artists and and they think they understand which constraints are worth breaking, if it's budget or the narrative, whatever the case may be. If they think it's worth breaking to enhance the entertainment, they'll do it. But if they don't think that's the case, then no matter how much scientific advice you give them, they're going to go with what they think. One of the consultants I talked with told me they pay you to give them advice, not for them to take it. And I think that's true, and that you probably experienced that as well. Many filmmakers are really interested in advice. James Cameron certainly won, Steven Spielberg. But even they fall prey to constraints like budget, visuals, and narrative. Yes. Well, I, I think that last is perhaps the most important, at least in my experience, because the story rules. And if the advice you're giving them, you know, ruins some sort of plot point, well, then they're going to go... 
<laughs> they're going to ignore that. They're not in the business of teaching people about science. But on the other hand, it is interesting to me because thinking back to the films that I saw as a child, they strike me as being far less accurate when it comes to the science than today. So how do you see that? Why, why are they in general more concerned about this? Well, they had science consultants even back in the day, many films, even films you wouldn't think about, like some B-movies of the, of the 1950s brought in scientists to advise them. But again, we put those, you know, advise in quotes, because back then they were thinking about scientific authenticity, but they didn't really think that scientific authenticity was going to hamper their film, that they got something wrong. Whereas nowadays, I think audiences are much, much more sophisticated. And I actually point to in the book a sort of dovetailing with the CGI. So once the CGI became more realistic, audiences want more realism in general in their films. And when the CGI gets better and the visuals get better, then they want the entire thing to seem plausible and to be realistic. Therefore, they now bring in scientists much earlier in the process. Well, one thing that does strike me is that back in the old days when you went to see a film, I mean, that film just came right off the supply reel to the projector at a relentless <laughs> pace, and there was just no stopping it and backing it up. But today, of course, you can do that. You're watching it at home on a DVD, and you can just stop and play the same sequence over and over and over and over again, and then get on the web and blog about it. So I can imagine that there's some <laughs> commercial incentive to getting it right, because there are going to be people who complain if it's not right. Can, can you think of any films where they should have brought somebody in but didn't, and it was oh, obvious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I've got a film. My staple answer for that is The Sixth Day, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film from 2000 about cloning. And the reason I, I use that one is I actually found an interview with the director where they asked him, did you bring in any scientists? And uh, this is flat out says, well, no, I didn't think we would need any. It's a film about cloning. It's an action film. Why would we need a scientist? And it shows in the film. It's got really ludicrous cloning where they come out as adults. They retain their memories, all sorts of horrible cloning procedures going on in that film. Did it get beaten up in the press because of these gaffes? Yeah, it got beaten up in the press and it didn't do very well at the box office. No. You know, if they had brought in a scientist, would it have done better? I can't say, but it certainly couldn't have done worse. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that there may be an actual penalty to pay if you don't get things right when you could. There was the film The Day After Tomorrow about the rapid onset of climate change, yeah. and uh, uh, New York turns into a giant snowball over a weekend and so forth. <laughs> now, on the one hand, that's not terribly accurate. The time scale is completely wrong. But on the other hand, the you know what actually happens is not so crazy. So, you know, was this a bad thing or maybe a good thing because people said, you know, maybe climate change is something I ought to get worried about. Yeah, absolutely. And and I talk about Day After Tomorrow in, in my book, and the science consultant for that, a guy named Michael Molitor, he was more in tune to the political aspects of climate change. He was involved in real discussions, advising the U.S. government about climate change legislation. And so from his perspective, it was really important just to raise awareness. 2004, it was a presidential election year. And so getting climate change on people's minds was really important. And I show in the book examples where, you know, you get editorials in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Science, Nature. And so it just raised awareness. And that was really important. I'm thinking when you say that of films like Armageddon and Deep Impact, which yeah. pointed out that, you know, a rock could hit you tomorrow and it would, <laughs> wouldn't be good <laughs> news. And, and, you know, shortly after that, uh, NASA began to spend a little bit more money in tracking near-Earth asteroids, the kind of things that could ruin our whole day. I, I just sort of wonder whether there was any connection between those two things. Yeah. And again, as, as an academic, my job is to find that evidence. And, and you can't find evidence. You find congressional testimony where a congressperson stands up and says, well, I just saw a deep impact in Armageddon. And believe me, that scared me. And we need to start funding these type of things. We can't be blindsided. And in Britain as well, their space protection program came out exactly the same time. You find members of parliament, uh, Lembic Opic is the one I point to in there who comes out and says, you look, those two movies should be scaring people. It's time for us to start funding this stuff. So movies can have, I think, a massive impact, especially on raising awareness, maybe not necessarily teaching the science, but raising awareness that these are issues that need to be funded and need scientists to have the money to get it right. <laughs> uh, what about films that, uh, not, not space-related films, but films that are more in the realm of, if you will, scientific fantasy, Spider-Man or the Hulk? Can these benefit from the advice of scientists, or would you say, look, this is fiction, pure fiction, you know, there's, there's no science in it? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. They can benefit. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that Americans especially want believability in their movies. They want their scenarios to be plausible. It's not so for Europeans as much. In the 1920s, most European films were just like, hey, magic ring, fine, we'll go with it. It's about psychological stuff anyway. But Americans said, no, I want to believe that I'm going into this fantastical journey. Therefore, they like scientists to help them make things like the Hulk plausible. And I talked to, for the Ang Lee Hulk, a guy named John Underkoffler, uh, who was their science advisor. And essentially what he did was came up with an entire genetic engineering scenario so that the Hulk was a mixture of lots of different animals so that it was plausible that you could actually create a Hulk. And, you know, the audience can get on you know, with what they really want to see, which is Hulk smash. Right. But yeah, as long as they buy into it and say, all right, that makes sense to me. I've heard of genetic engineering. Seems reasonable. That's important, I think, for filmmakers. David Kirby, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you for having me. David Kirby is a senior lecturer in science communication studies at the University of Manchester in the UK. He's the author of Lab Coats in Hollywood, Science, Scientists, and Cinema. Well, I understand, Seth, that the National Academy of Sciences finds this issue of science advisors in film important enough to take it up on their agenda. They do. The National Academy of Sciences, of course, is sort of a nonprofit, independent advisory body for the government whenever questions of science or technology come up. In fact, it goes all the way back to the time of Lincoln. It's a very old uh, organization. But they've recognized that a lot of kids go into science because they've gone to some science fiction film. So they figure, well, if the science fiction films have more themes about science, maybe more accurate science, hey, that can only be a good thing. So they have an office down near Hollywood, and whenever they hear about a sci-fi film being made, they bring in the scientists. Excuse me, Robo, any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Next, could a robot like Robo from the film RoboCop really be in our future? Or is the truth stranger than fiction? It's Bollywood Science on Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, a look at sci-fi film tropes wouldn't be complete without consideration of our titanium and silicon-built buddies, the robots. There have been some great robot characters in film. The good... I do believe they think I am some sort of god. ...such as C-3PO. The bad... I'll be back. ...from The Terminator. And The Eve. The sweet, cute companion to the sweet, cute Wall-E. When Hollywood has visions of a robotic future, the robots do tend to be either evil or cute. The reality, however, may be in between, because one of the most promising robots to emerge from real labs is based on people like you. Writer Lucas Kavner met Bina48 in researching a piece about the rise of robot surrogates for the Huffington Post. Bina48 is a $125,000 humanoid robot designed to mimic human personality. She's a product of the Terrasem Movement Foundation in Bristol, Vermont, which believes that personal robots are in our future. And this may be a future that Hollywood hasn't prepped us for. There's not much like it in the theaters, despite the occasionally far-out and imaginative scenarios of sci-fi films. A surrogate robot that takes on your personality receives rare dramatic treatment by Hollywood. So what movie robots does Lucas Kavner think come the closest? In terms of robot design and things, I mean, the most interesting probably is the one in Prometheus. Hello. I'm David. I can do almost anything that could possibly be asked of me. You know, he's the most human of all, and there's also that classic kind of cinema robot quality of being 
just close enough to being a human, but there's just something off. I can carry out directives that my human counterparts might find distressing or unethical. In the way they act and in the way they perform. I can blend in with your workforce effortlessly. Well, I think you're speaking of David in Prometheus. Yes. Right. And and he now, physically, he looks just like us, right? I mean, you know, is there something about him? Could you look at him? Is there something wrong with his fifth finger or something like that? that you'd say, oh, wait a minute, that, that, that isn't a human. Well, the thing about David is that he is played by a real person, whereas unlike, you know, other robots that are being designed now, there there is that kind of giveaway. You know, either it's in their eyes, you know, even though... A lot of the robots being made now uh, by scientists and, and around uh, America have, you know, very, very human, human-like characteristics. I mean, if you looked at them from afar, you wouldn't be able to tell that they weren't human. But usually when you get closer, you can tell there's something off in the way their faces move or the motors that are moving their face. Something gives it away that it's a robot. But uh, because David is played by, you know, Michael Fassbender, who's, you know, a good actor and also a real human being, there isn't as much of a giveaway that he's a robot, except that he's, you know, evil and a little bit soulless. The robots in the films are either super-duper operating systems, kind of like HAL in 2001, Mm -hmm. right? Or they're just some handy pals having sensors to warn us of danger, like Robbie the Robot in Lost in Space. But you've just met another type of robot, and it is, in some sense, us. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I met a Bina 48 who... She lives in Vermont, she or it, uh, you know, depending on your, your preference for, for robot personalities. But but she uh, was designed uh, and based off of a real person. And it's from this organization called the Terrorism Movement Foundation. And their whole thing is getting people's minds, you know, all the facets of their minds, the details of their minds into a robot or a computer. And then I guess their idea is that we can live forever through our robot counterparts but Bina is, is based on, on a real person who, you know, they interviewed her over many hours. And so she is, you know, part robot. You know, she knows every piece of information on the Internet, but also she can have a conversation with you. And she has hours and hours of, of real information programmed into her based on this real person. OK, so so Bina, Bina 48, I believe is her name, right? Yeah, correct. Bina, Bina was uh, Bina Rothblatt, who she's based on, was uh, 48 years old when the robot was commissioned. When when you walked in to see this robot, I mean, what what did you see? Well, it's it's very strange because from afar it looks like a bust of a human has been chopped off and just placed on a desk. <laughs> so it's very jarring because uh, you walk into this office where the robot lives. And and it does look like a real person's head. And then you get closer and closer and closer, and you realize it's it's not. It's not real at all. But all right. it's very, very unsettling. So a bodiless head just sitting on a desk. Uh, this reminds me of some very cheesy sci-fi films from a long time ago. Uh, now, did you start talking to her? Or did she just sit there? Did this head just sit there? Or did it say, hi, I'm being No, it doesn't automatically. You have to kind of plug her in to her computer um, <laughs> to get her to work. And so... You know, you do voice recognition software so that she can recognize your voice. So you just program, you know, certain sentences so your voice gets programmed into her. And then, yeah, you just start talking to her. And, and you can talk to her for, for hours because it's just fascinating you. You know, it's it's that combination of wanting to get some amazing answer of, you know, the nature of human existence out of her and also just being completely curious about how these things work. What, what, what was it like? I mean, is it like talking to Siri on my smartphone? Because I don't have the feeling that I'm talking to anything, you know, very clever there. Right, right. Yeah, well, it's it's like talking to Siri in that she knows everything. You know, you can ask her about, you know, some weird health problem you have and she can spurt some knowledge, you know, that she's got about it or like some, you know, any piece of information you can ask. So just like Siri, she works that way. But she's also way better of a, a chat bot. You know, Siri can kind of have a few lines of regular conversation, but she stops there. You know, Bina keeps asking questions, you know, what's it like outside? And she'll talk about the weather for a little while. And also she has this real person's, you know, whole history plan. So you'll ask her about what she thinks of children, and she'll start talking about some real detail in the real human Bina's life about her real children and how she interacts with them. So it's this kind of three-part structure working within her, her brain. Now, 
my understanding is that Bina 48 is being built not to become, you know, your best friend forever uh, sometime in the indefinite future, but to become you. In other words, to eventually serve as a prototype for the kind of robot or computer, and I'm not sure why you need a robot, why couldn't you just use a computer, but something that you would upload your, your soul, if you will, into this entity, and that way you could, you know, after your death, just keep on having friends and, you know, writing books and conversations and whatever, that kind of thing. Is, is that the idea here? That is the idea, yeah. The company that commissioned her, the Terrison Foundation, that, that's, that's what they have. And it's founded by people with a, a lot of money and a lot of interest in this subject of kind of programming your mind into a, a robot or, or some other form. And they have um, a program that they created called Life Knot that is very, you know, it's basically a mind clone or a mind file program where you create an avatar of yourself and you can start uploading things to it. It's in its earliest stages now, but you can upload, you know, photos, uh, documents, emails, just information. So ostensibly down the line, you know, when this is this technology becomes real, you'll be able to have this mind file of yourself to be accessed in all sorts of ways. When I think of robots in films, I mean, they, they either play the role of, if you will, some sort of master control panel, I don't know, Uber, Uber control kind of thing that you can count on to run your spaceship or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or uh, they are, uh, you know, evil, malevolent beings, but they're always themselves. They're, they're never uploaded versions of us. So is this idea something that's been treated in movies? I don't think so. I mean, there's certainly been clones, I feel like. You know, people have had clones of themselves, but those have literally just been clones as if it's just two of you. But there's never, I don't think I've seen, you know, this is the robot version of me and this is me. Um, I I can't think of a film that, that that was in. Some time ago, a Japanese researcher pointed out that you know, making cute robots is always appealing. People love those. But if you make them too lifelike, apparently you hit what's called the uh, the uncanny valley, which sounds like a housing development here in California. But <laughs> the, the the uncanny valley, where they're so close to humans but not quite humans, that you react with disgust or repulsion. Did did you get that feeling from Bina Forty Eight? Yeah, I mean, I think repulsion is is the word they always use. It's never repulsion, but there's something that freaks you out once you get to this point where you're like, oh, God. You know, you're you're looking at it, and it's it's exciting, it's cool, it's cool, and then suddenly you think your your mind... I spoke to um, a, a researcher who studied Uncanny Valley a lot, and she says that people's brains, you know, when they're exposed to these human-looking kind of things, their brains just have to work so much harder to understand what's going on. So, you know, she plugged people into MRI machines and realized that when they're looking at these kinds of robots that look just like us, their brains just have to to work overtime to kind of figure out what's going on because it's still still so foreign to us. Well, finally, Lucas, you sound fairly credible. Are you for real? Are you really a homo sapiens? I, I hope I am, or else this is just some elaborate ruse put on by the robot designers. I'm not sure. I, I hope so. Unless this is the year past 2045 at some point, then maybe I'm not, if we're listening to this in 2046. Lucas Gavner, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Truth is stranger than fiction for Huffington Post writer Lucas Kavner. <laughs> Robots are frequently integral to the plots of movies combining fiction and science, but Hollywood writers and directors also like to crack open the medical texts or find someone who can do that for them, someone like UCLA medical geneticist Wayne Grody. Now, not getting the facts right about interstellar travel or whether robots can really take over the world may incite sarcasm among scientists and science lovers. And sure, scientific literacy may take a hit, but the consequences don't endanger health or life. However, scripts that include misleading medical information can. Dr. Grody has been on the receiving end of phone calls from a number of film and television producers. Well, they usually tend to call me when there's a plot point that involves either some unusual genetic disease, and uh, for many purposes, the more rare, the better, because the others have been used already, or something about DNA, DNA testing, cloning, uh, that kind of thing. That's when I usually get called. Do they listen to you? I mean, uh, I've done some consulting for space operas, and, uh, you know, they'll ask you to look over the script and try and make the uh, dialogue sound as if it's uh, actually correct, but... 
they don't listen to too much of what I say. Yeah, Seth, I, I certainly empathize because my experience has been much the same as yours. I'd say if I had to count up all the examples, maybe half the time they take my suggestions, the other half they just politely say, oh, that's interesting and not incorporate it. And I've learned not to have my feelings hurt. They're the ones who are responsible for the story, the entertainment value, which is really the ultimate goal. If we can have some real science injected, more to the better, but that's not the deal breaker. You know, in a lot of films involving science, what what happens, the action, is not always too far off the mark. I mean, it's plausible, perhaps, but things are sped up. Global warming turns New York into a block of ice in the space of a week, something like that. Is there any routine, maybe semi-inevitable error that you find in medical dramas, something that they routinely get wrong? Yeah, uh, one that comes to mind, which is very time-related, and I do make the objection all the time, and yet it has no effect, and I understand why it doesn't, is the amount of time it takes to actually do DNA testing. And most often here we're talking about DNA fingerprinting for some forensic you know, crime type of solving. I don't want to single out any one show, but CSI does a lot of that. They, they have a DNA lab on the show. And um, they always get the answer, you know, before or just after the next commercial, when in reality it, it would take at least a week and maybe a lot longer than that. Wow, at least a week. Yeah, but by then the, the whole case may have been thrown over by new evidence anyhow. I, yeah, that's quite possible. It's one limitation of our field. When I see a hero or heroine in a film or a TV show land in the hospital, they still look pretty good. I mean, they got, you know, some sort of marks on their faces or something, but basically they look okay. But when I've been in a hospital, and I have been, I'm not looking very good at all. I mean, that may sound trivial, but does it strike you when you see these medical dramas that the people don't really look sick? Yeah, it really does. And I'm sure that they're weighing their um, options here. You know, they don't want too many people in the audience to get nauseated to the point they (laughs) switch to another channel, and yet they want it to be realistic. You're right. I rarely see anything that really resembles serious illness because it's just probably not the kind of thing you want in your living room every week. Traditionally, Wayne, uh, scientists have been portrayed in the movies as, I don't know, almost ludicrous. When I think of the scientists that I saw in my youth on the silver screen, you know, they were typically short, bald guys with squeaky voices running around in their white lab coats, screaming about, we got to save the monster for science or something like that. Totally unrealistic. But medical types, well... They seem to have a much better Hollywood image. I mean, they're fatherly, they're, they're good-looking, they're wise. Is that true? You, you seem to have come out on the long end of the stick here. It does. It seems that way. And I don't know. There are both advantages and disadvantages to that. I grew up watching the, the first generation of sort of Disease of the Week shows, which uh, the main ones I remember are uh, Dr. Kildare and Ben Casey. That's certainly going to date me as far as my age, but I'll admit it. And I have to admit, those shows were so influential, they were a big reason I went into medicine. But they're also so idealized that it may be the reason I'm often disappointed in the real world of medicine. Somehow it's not like it was on Dr. Kildare. Well, I have to say the same is true in our field, of course. And, you know, in the movies when they deal with aliens, it's always somehow a lot more adventuresome than the real deal. Uh, But uh, did you actually go into medicine, do you think, uh, because of these films, these TV shows you were seeing as a kid? Fortunately, the answer to that is not completely yes. Um, It's largely no. I mean, I like the glamour aspect of that, which it turns out medicine doesn't have that much of, but I don't really care anymore. It was really because I've always been interested in the biology of disease, and little did I know I would be graduating medical school at the time when it was the molecular biology of disease that was taking over all of medicine, namely DNA, and I've been able to build my career on it, and it's been very rewarding. Well, a few years ago, and I know you recall this, there was a panel organized by the National Science Foundation that talked about science consulting for films. Uh, You were on that panel, as was I. Two of us were talking about what was right and what was wrong in, you know, space-related films. But my take was, and I think that was also the take of the other guy talking about space, is that it really didn't matter very much whether they get the astronomy or the aerospace right. doesn't seem to do any harm if it's faulty, and, and the kids will get emotionally engaged anyhow. But you got up there, and you said, look, it's different when you're talking about medical shows. Yeah, and I, I remember that panel very well. It was a lot of fun. I've always loved astronomy, and I, as you know, I, I love the whole SETI project. Uh, just to be flanked by two astronomers was a great treat for me. And I did get the impression. I remember our other, the third speaker who had consulted on Deep Impact, which I thought was a very good movie, well-acted and nice science. 
he thought the depiction of the comet was just totally wrong. And I thought it would look really cool. So that's because I'm not in that field. And I guess you could say vice versa for medicine. But you're right. The point I made was people like me won't know that a comet is drawn wrong by the special effects artists. And probably it's not going to be the end of the world. But if we get something wrong about a disease or genetic testing and people who should be getting the test are scared away from it wrongly, that could really be a matter of life and death. Can you give me an example of where this might have played out, this kind of thing? Yeah, we're all always sensitive when genetic diseases are discussed as far as their uh, prognosis, their treatment. It can be both good and bad. There have been a number of shows that have had as their plot point someone who has a family history of breast and ovarian cancer, and they're thinking about getting pre-symptomatic testing for mutations in the two causative genes, BRCA1 and 2. And it's been done well, fortunately, but let's say it wasn't, and they put a huge scare factor into that. Then people who really could benefit from this kind of genetic knowledge would not seek the test, and that would be a tragedy. On the other side, a show I worked on, which was a very sweet, wonderful family show, Life Goes On, that's where it was about a regular family, but one of the children had Down syndrome. And the actor who played that character had Down syndrome. He was fairly high-functioning. And I think, and I've heard from many people, that it it gave a a somewhat different view of Down syndrome to the general public than they might have had based on when they had seen Down syndrome children at summer camp or whatever. Now, that can be both good and bad because then it raises the expectations that if they have a Down syndrome pregnancy and give birth, that, you know, their child will end up being an actor or something like that, which, you know, may happen, but it's not highly realistic. So so what you're saying is that if a, a woman gets pregnant and has an ultrasound and, and the doctor says, you know, the kid's going to have Down syndrome, do you want to carry this to term? Do you think that shows like this are going to affect that decision? Yeah, it kind of can affect it, which is fine. I mean, that's one purpose of the show. Those of us in genetics and doing genetic counseling, we always try to be non-directive. Regardless of what I would do if it was my wife's pregnancy, I'm not supposed to let that influence how we talk to the patient. We just give them all the information and all the options on the table, and they can choose to continue the pregnancy or not. But now they've also seen the TV show, which we have no control of, and it's just one other factor in their sort of global view of the disorder. Do you think there's any recognition of this sort of responsibility on the part of the movie and TV makers? From what I've seen, yes, and I I have great respect for filmmakers. It's one reason I've enjoyed this little side job. I love being on the set. Uh, I like the way everyone has their job to do it. It really reminds me of an operating room. It's very slick and streamlined, and everyone's well-trained. And similarly, at the producer-writer level, they do want these things to be accurate. They know it's going out to millions of people. And, you know, as long as it doesn't totally compromise the plot... They'd like to be as realistic as possible, and they certainly don't want to do any harm. Uh, These people all have, we all have diseases in our family, if not our own personal lives, and we know how terrible that can be, and they don't want to make it any worse. Well, finally, Wayne, do you enjoy medical dramas, or do they just make you cringe? You know, uh, they don't make me cringe too much as far as the unreality of them, because all the ones around today, no matter how far out they might get are light years beyond the ones I grew up watching, which were mainly just simple soap operas. The fact they were in the hospital was almost incidental. But, you know, given the choice, I'd much rather watch a space opera than a medical drama. (laughs) Well, Wayne Grody, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Seth. It's a lot of fun. Wayne Grody is a medical geneticist and director of the DNA Diagnostic Laboratory at the UCLA Medical Center. Next, the inside scoop on one of TV's most popular sci-fi series from one of its top scriptwriters. It's Hollywood science on Skeptic Check, but don't take our word for it. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts.
That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Follywood Science on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. We've been talking about the degree to which television and film producers and directors strive for accuracy in their films and television shows. What about those awful science fiction films that we love that don't even bother with accuracy? Seth, what are some of your favorite bad sci-fi films? Well, I don't know. I remember Santa Claus going to Mars and things like that. But, but That was the, not a real film. I, I think it was, actually. But there, there was another one that I saw that actually I thought might even be worse, and it was called Zontar, Thing from Venus. It wasn't good. Okay, and what wasn't credible about that idea? Well, I mean, there's this guy from Venus. To begin with, Venus is a very you know, tough environment. But this guy looked like your next-door neighbor. He shows up on Earth, and he just sort of shuffles around a little bit and makes uh, some grunt sounds and so forth. Uh, there wasn't much of a storyline there. Why do you think the bad science fiction films are so much fun to watch? You know, that's a good question, actually. I think that it's, it somehow makes us feel better to know that this film is so bad that actually I could have made a better film than this, and, and maybe that's all there is to it. Well, they're also portraits of just outrageous imagination, which is fun. Well, or lack thereof. I mean, that's the thing with Zantar, I think from Venus, you'd think he'd be, have some Venusian properties, but as far as I could tell, he didn't. <laughs> well, we heard earlier about the film that is one of the most scientifically accurate that Hollywood has put out. But which show garners that honor in television? Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Andre Bormanis is a television writer and was involved for a long time with Star Trek, sometimes as a writer and sometimes as a science consultant. Oh, uh, you know, there was a lot of thought given to the science ahead of time, and much to the credit of Gene Roddenberry, who created the original, and the uh, producers and writers of all of the spinoffs, they were very keen on getting the science in their stories to be as credible as possible. Well, can you give me an example? We did an episode of the Deep Space Nine series that involved a comet in a uh, prominent role. And the two guys who wrote that episode called me before they started the script and said, hey, you know, we're doing this story about a comet. And we kind of know what a comet is, but how big is a comet? And what are they made of? And how fast do they go? And how does that tail form? So we spent an hour or so talking about comets, and I gave them the sort of the Comet 101 talk. And they started writing their script. And after they finished their first draft, uh, I got a copy of it and went through it and, uh, you know, tweaked some of the language to make sure that, you know, they were using the proper terms for a particular chemical property that they were talking about or some aspect of the dynamics of the comet. Uh, but of course, Star Trek was a show that took place three, four hundred years in the future, and we had to invent a lot of new science in order to uh, rationalize things like warp drive and transporters. So there was certainly a fictional component to the show, but we always tried to ground that in analogies to real science, real physics, to make sure that the characters who were engineers and scientists on the show used the scientific method, talked about problems the way that a scientist would talk about a problem, and, and deal with it in a way that, that would make sense to present-day scientists. And of course, present-day scientists and engineers made up a big fraction of the audience of the show, so we wanted to make sure that they were happy. I remember in the Star Trek days having a copy of the, uh, I think it was called the Star Trek Handbook. And yes. it, yeah, well, it had technical descriptions, even drawings, uh, almost like blueprints, not entirely, of the power systems on the Starship Enterprise and how a tractor beam worked or whatever, how mm -hmm. fast was Warp 7 and so forth. Right. This, this was presumably because there were many writers involved? Yeah, we had this, you know, this thing called a Bible for the show that went through in painstaking detail everything that we had established on the show with regards to the technology of the starships and the terminology used to describe the different components of the ship. You know, and we developed in, in great detail a, a kind of a working theory of the warp drive, if you will. And, of course, it's fictional, but it was analogous to, you know, propulsion systems that we use in rocketry today, but with, you know, some fictional terminology thrown in to uh, sidestep the question of, well, how do we get all of that antimatter that we need to uh, fuel the matter-antimatter reaction? And uh, how do we warp space? Well, we have this material called vitrium cortinide in the Star Trek universe. It has the property when you blow a plasma through coils of this material, it will uh, alter the space-time continuum in, in a way that you can control. And uh, that part of it was ob obviously sort of magic. But we very much had a, you know, what we considered anyway, um, a logical approach to how we would talk about 
those kinds of systems on the ship. My limited experience with writers for film and TV is that they're not necessarily familiar with some of the big science ideas today. Do you think there's some room for putting more cutting-edge science into shows? I mean, even elementary concepts like dark matter, dark energy, the eternal inflation of the universe, maybe even string theory. I don't mean elementary in the sense that they're simple, but elementary in the sense that they're sort of big ideas in science today. Is it possible to get these into scripts, or is it all just too esoteric? Uh, it's not too esoteric, and we, uh, you know, we often did that on Star Trek. I'm not sure that there are shows on television today that are, um, you know, really designed to grapple with those kinds of ideas. But on Star Trek, for example, we did an episode of Voyager that was uh, essentially based on the idea of symbiogenesis, this notion that some of the organelles in the cells in our bodies might have been independent organisms that were absorbed by the cells that now make up us, but instead of being digested, they basically took up a symbiotic relationship. The mitochondria uh, in our cells, the essentially the powerhouses of our cells, pretty clear that they were at some point in the evolutionary history an independent organism. And that became the genesis of an episode. And, and the writers would come to me and say, hey, you know, is there anything cool out there that's been discovered recently? Uh, I got this story and, you know, these aliens are going to be doing a weird experiment on the crew of our ship unbeknownst to our crew, and while they're doing that, our crew is investigating some astronomical phenomenon or something cool. Uh, what do you got? One complaint that's frequently made but generally ignored is that so many film and TV aliens are anthropomorphic, you know, and they not only look like us, they even act like us. Now, I can understand that this makes them easier characters to understand in the terms of the story, but can you give me any examples of aliens that were really a lot more alien? Well, you know, it was uh, certainly on Star Trek we did a few, and part of the reason for this anthrop anthropomorphism in Star Trek and a lot of the other science fiction is, until pretty recently, uh, it was just technically very hard to do anything else. Very hard to do a purely special effect kind of alien. If you look at the 1960s Star Trek, we had some intelligent sort of cloud creatures or glittering lights or you know, creatures that didn't have corporeal form until they inhabited a human body. So there were various tricks that we used to try to depict these um, non-humanoid life forms. And today, they, of course, they, they look pretty silly, pretty dated. And when the computer special effects technology started to evolve in the 70s and 80s, we were able to do more sophisticated things, and the writers were able to stretch their imaginations a little farther first episode of Star Trek Enterprise that I wrote called Silent Enemy. We had a fully computer-generated alien. They were still somewhat humanoid, but almost a hybrid of a, kind of a humanoid insectoid and, and other kind of weird features. But, you know, even then, we could, we could only afford to show them for about 15 to 18 seconds of film time because they were so expensive to do. And uh, But beyond that, you know, today, much easier, obviously. And, you know, if you look at Avatar and you know, some other recent films, you can pretty much do anything that you can imagine. But I think as human beings, it's very hard for us to imagine what an alien life form would look like that's particularly different from us. And even if we can imagine it, it's a very hard thing to represent in a, in a compelling way on a story level. Well, finally, Andre, if somebody walked up to you and guaranteed the production budget for any sci-fi film you wanted to make... <laughs> I mean, this might happen tomorrow, but what sort of story would you make? I would love to tell a grand-scale story about humanity's expansion into the universe. We're just here on this one little speck of dust, this one little planet in this vast cosmos. Why did God have to create such an enormous stage <laughs> to create this, uh, this rather uh, focused human drama? And I thought, well, maybe we just haven't gotten to the point in the story yet where we use the rest of the stage. You know, maybe we're the first ones here. Maybe maybe intelligence uh, like ours is rare in the universe, and and maybe uh, we will find that it's our destiny to fill it. Uh, I would like to do uh, I would like to do a film that grapples with those kinds of questions. I'd like to see that film, Andre. Andre Bormanis, thanks so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure, Seth. Andre Bormanis is a television writer and worked for many years on the Star Trek television series.
Well, Seth, we know that you have your bona fides as a scientist, as a science consultant on film, but what about as a director and producer of sci-fi film? Well, I've got to tell you this, Molly. I have made sci-fi films. In fact, I began doing that when I was 11 years old when we made uh, uh, Invisible Formula H2037 in our basements, my buddy and I did. Okay, give me some other films that you made. We made uh, The Teenage Monster Blob from Outer Space, which I was. Did you have a science consultant on that film? Yes, I was the science consultant. Uh, we made <laughs> the how, tra- how accurate was the blob? Uh, well, the blob, this was a parody of a film that starred Steve. No, it was a parody? It was, of, of a, a Steve McQueen film called The Blob, but ours involved four pounds of Play-Doh that in invaded Washington, D.C. and ate up congressmen and, and stuff like that. So it, you had like a little model D.C. there? No, we used the real D.C. I happened to grow up in the area, so <laughs> we would stop traffic on uh, uh, in downtown Washington while we frame by frame animated this, this Play-Doh oozing along the sidewalks. Yeah, that film wasn't terribly successful. In fact, it was so poorly received at parties where we would play it that we decided to make a film that was just the trailer. So we only had to make three minutes worth of film and no plot line, and that was the turkey that ate St. Louis. Okay, so I'm guessing this was an oversized turkey. Or it was a miniature St. Louis. Yes. Uh, in this case, we made St. Louis smaller. was easier than making the turkey larger. In fact, I had to go out to a turkey farm to shoot some sequences there. And you might be surprised by this, but in fact, turkeys are very bad actors. And, and, our, and our, our star would not stay on the set. We had to tie a rope around one of his legs and sort of stake him to the ground just to keep him on the model set of St. Louis. But in this case, to say that the film was a turkey would actually be a, that was the, a compliment. Yes, that was the whole point. That's why we called it the turkey that ate St. Louis. Uh, yes. Thanks to our science factual production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Their talents are not fictional. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Follywood Science on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program at Big Picture Science, and you can leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because radio strikes you as some sort of science fiction-y thing, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. We need a Santa Claus on Mars. Earth has had Santa Claus long enough. We will bring him to Mars. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.